again. We're glad you're here, especially uh, our guests. We want to welcome you. My name is Jimmy. I'm the teaching pastor here at True Life. And uh, we're in a series where we're walking through uh, the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 5. If you want to go there in your Bible, the title of the series is The World Seems Out of Control, But... And we're filling in the blank each week with uh, some things that, that God does, even when it seems like the world's out of control. We're going to talk about today the fact that it may seem like the world's out of control, that people can do uh, whatever they want, uh, kind of with impunity, and then get away with whatever. But we're going to see today that while it may seem like the world is out of control, that actually God judges the rebellious. And as we rebel that God deals with us. So, Robert and I were in Hawaii recently, and one of the things that we got to do, uh, it's an amazing thing, is we visited Pearl Harbor, and it reminded me of one of the facts of that morning, that about an hour before the attack, a, a young radar operator by the name of George Elliott Jr. saw a group of planes on uh, the, the radar, which was very primitive at, at that time, and he warned his uh, superiors of this, told them what uh, he saw, but they dismissed it. They didn't heed his warning, and they said, you know, it's some American B-17 bombers flying in from a training uh, exercise and didn't report it to anyone. And uh, because of an unheeded warning, probably lives that didn't need to be lost, we're lost. Um, there's a man by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. Um, I'm taking that as a no. <laughs> okay. Um, he died in a mental institute. But earlier in his life, he was, he was actually a doctor. And he issued a warning about the importance of hand washing. Something that we take for granted today, but what was happening is he, he was working in a hospital, and there were two labor and delivery wards in the, in the hospital, one that was manned by doctors and, and young medical students, and one that was manned by midwives. And what, what was happening was that in the uh, ward that was manned by the, the doctors and the medical students, the death rate of moms was astronomical. And it was very small, very tiny in the one manned by midwives, just this huge disparity. And it seemed like that all the factors were the same other than who was manning it. And, and he wanted to, to figure this out. And, and all these moms were dying of something called childbed fever. And he uh, eventually, almost by accident, stumbled onto the cause of it. And, and the cause of it was that these doctors and medical students were performing autopsies first thing in the morning, and then they were coming and delivering babies without washing their hands, transferring the germs uh, from the corpses to uh, the moms, and this huge number of them were dying, and, but many people, and, and apparently the guy was kind of eccentric and he wasn't a great communicator, but, but many people would not accept his findings, and uh, many moms died needlessly because of an unheeded warning. How many times in our lives have we not heeded warnings and paid the price for it? 
How many times have we not listened to our spouse or our parents or other wise counsel? How many times have we believed the lie that we can go against Scripture and get away with it? How many times have we not listened to our conscience or the still small voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives and paid the price of an unheeded warning? Some of you today, I'm concerned, are in danger danger of eternal condemnation because you're not heeding the warnings of Scripture. And you're not responding to the gospel. Proverbs 6.15 says, Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. And so as we come to Daniel chapter 5 today, we're going to see someone who's, who's probably his grandfather. His life was a warning, and he didn't heed that warning, and he paid the price. You see, in the first four chapters of Daniel, we've kind of been in the Nebuchadnezzar story arc, so to speak. But now Nebuchadnezzar has passed off the scene. He's not in the story anymore, but there's still a sense in which Daniel chapter 5 is part 2 of Daniel uh, chapter 4, where in in Daniel chapter 4, you had a, a proud man that God broke and he responded But now we're going to see another proud man, and we're going to see what happens. So uh, let's read, and what we're going to do is I'm going to read the first verse, and then I'm going to go back and give you some background uh, to try to hopefully set up and help understand what's going on in in, in this passage of Scripture since it kind of introduces just a a, a new person. So it, it starts out, and it says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So the question is, who is this guy? How do we get from Nebuchadnezzar to him? So, so a little uh, background. Danny Aiken says there's a chronological gap between chapters 4 and 5 of approximately 20 years. We must keep in mind, however, that Daniel was never written to give us a history lesson about Babylonians, Medes, and Persians. It was written to encourage the Hebrew people God's people, that though they had been defeated and exiled three times, God was sovereignly sovereignly in control, and that they should trust him even when they could not trace his hand. So that's the purpose of it, but 20-year gap. Now, one thing about this, you know, I, I said in the first message that Daniel is one of the most challenged books in the Bible. And one of the places it was challenged for a long time was in chapter 5, and with the existence, existence of Belshazzar. Because for a long time, the only textual historical record of him was in the Bible. And so a lot of critics said, well, this is just made up. This isn't true. This didn't happen. But over the last several years, archaeologists have discovered all t- kinds of ancient documents that named Belshazzar in it. So even if you don't believe the Bible, his uh, existence has been proved. And uh, again, this is another place where critics' objections to this book and to the Bible in general have been debunked, have been uh, disproved by other facts in archaeology and history. But the question is, who is this guy? 
And so I'm just going to read from Old Testament scholar uh, Gleason Archer. He puts it this way. He said, Nebuchadnezzar had died in 563, succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach. What a name. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a professional wrestler or something. I don't, I don't know. But, um, but two years later, Evil Merodach was assassinated by his brother-in-law, General Neraglisser. Now, Neraglisser died just four years later, and his son, Labashi Marduk, who succeeded him, was murdered nine months later. This revolt placed its leader, Nabonidus, on the throne. He does not seem to have been related to the royal house by blood, but apparently married a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar in order to legitimize his seizure of the throne. For commercial and military advantage, he devoted much attention to North Arabia and Edom, which he conquered in 552. During the last 10 years of his life, he seems to have spent most of his time in, in Taima, an important Edomite or North Arabian capital, and he left the central administration to the charge of his son Belshazzar in Babylon itself, the situation still obtaining during this final year of the Chaldean Empire in 539 B.C. In other words, Nabonidus was the king, his son Belshazzar was something of a vice regent or a co-regent who was leading uh, from Babylon, from the capital, while his dad was out doing something else. Now, stop and think about it for a second. As we read this, or if you've read this before, and I, I hope you're reading through uh, Daniel each week, but, but what we're going to see in here, it's going to reference more than once that whoever can, in, can interpret the handwriting on the wall here, Belshazzar offers him the third position in the kingdom. Why would he have offered him the third position in the kingdom? Because he was second. Nabonidus was one. He was two. So the best he could offer was the third position. Something else to think about as we read this. When the queen appears, it's probably not talking about Belshazzar's wife. It's probably talking about the queen mother who was at that palace for some reason at, at that time. Talking about his mom where... Uh, he, he, was, he was technically the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, but you say, well, it doesn't call him son. But, but you understand, in, if you read the Old Testament genealogies, there's not a Hebrew word for grandfather, great-grandfather. So it just says son of, but that may mean grandson, great-grandson, those kind of things. So that's what's going on uh, with that. You should also know as we read through the story that uh, as this banquet, as this feast is happening, and archaeologists have, have uncovered the room that it probably took place in that was, would have been about 10,000 square feet, that could have fit in it uh, th this number of, of people, that there was a Persian army at the gates laying siege to the city, but Babylon had these magnificent, incredible fortifications. They, in anticipation of a Persian attack, had, had laid up provisions for years, and, and they thought they were basically, that they couldn't be overcome. They, they, they thought they were impregnable, that, that nothing could happen to them. Okay? So keep all that in mind, and now let's read the story, okay? So it says, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. We saw that in chapter 1. And, and, and just what a slap in the face of the Hebrews' God. 
that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Remember that these temple implements symbolize the presence of God, and, and this is how they're using them. It says, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and, and, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and, and stone. So this is what they're doing. And it says, in the same hour that they were doing that, that the fingers of a man's hand appeared and rode opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So this was a supernatural intervention, God's judgment coming uh, upon him. It says, then the king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees Knocked against each other. Have you ever heard that phrase? Somebody's knees are knocking. There, there you go. That's what was happening. He was shaken up by this. It says the, the king cried aloud to bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be, here it is, the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, of course, as we've seen before, now all the king's wise men came. I mean, th these guys are kind of getting paid for doing nothing, right? They're, they're pretty useless, but they cannot read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Uh, the, then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, again, probably his mom, uh, because of the words of the king and, and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, uh, the, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and, and soothsayers. And, and this may be sort of a rebuke here, in a sense. It's like, uh, this is what your grandfather did, but now you've kind of relegated him over to the side here. But, but she says, Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. And then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And I love Daniel's response here. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. He answers and he says, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another, yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. In other words, he just kind of said, you know, just take it and shove it. Uh, you know, I, I don't care about what you're offering me. Uh, I mean, this is integrity. 
This is a man who has been, he's an old man now. He's been faithful. He's been faithful there since he was a teenager. He's lived with integrity. Do you understand that living with integrity is like compound interest? It just multiplies as you get older. And he's still in a position to speak truth to power. And the amazing thing about this is you remember we saw in chapter 1 how that Daniel was going to outlast, outlive an empire? That's going to be fulfilled this very night. And, and I just, before we want to move on and, and, and read the interpretation, uh, I, I want to maybe give an application here to those of you who are older. And I'll let you decide if you fit in that category or not. Uh, but uh, particularly if you're retired, I mean, in, in chapter one, I, I challenge you know, teenagers, college students um, to commit to live your life to make a difference. Can I just say to you, you know, if you're... 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, I think we have one person here in, in, in his 80s. It's not time to retire from the Lord's service. You know, it's not time to go collect seashells on the beach for the rest of your life. Uh, God wants to use you and use you maybe now more than he ever has. We need you. Younger people need you. We have, uh, you know, couples that need to be mentored, people that need to be discipled, young parents that could use your experience and wisdom, ways if you've got more time, ways that you can serve. If you're financially set, you can give to make a difference for the kingdom. Don't stop now. Daniel didn't stop when he was an old man. Now, this is... The interpretation of it. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that, uh, that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Uh, whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever, whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. It was an unheeded warning. Listen, don't presume on God's grace. Don't, don't assume because God gave somebody else time to repent. God gave somebody else a bunch of chances that he's going to do the same thing for you. He's not obligated to that. Listen, if we get what we deserve, he'd kill us and send us to hell the first time we sin. Everything beyond that's mercy. It's grace. Don't assume that you've got forever. It was an unheeded warning. He says, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. 
And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. It's kind of like he's saying, this tonight, this was the final straw. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. And this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written, many, many, tekel, uparzin. This is the interpretation of each word, many. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Therese, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, give you just one more piece of historical background, and then we'll do what we've done and talk about conviction, action, Christ connections. You say, well, you know, did that really happen? Did they take over the city? Did they uh, kill Bel- Bel- Belshazzar? I mean, how would this have happened? I thought you said, you know, that it was impossible to overcome. Well, this is what the history tells us. There's a couple of Greek historians called by names of Herodotus and Xenophon who wrote historical accounts of it. And here's a summation of one of them uh, from a scholar. Unknown to them, Cyrus's resourceful commander, Ugbaru, had diverted the waters of the Euphrates to an old channel dug by a previous ruler, suddenly reducing the water level well below the river gates. Before long, the Persian, Persian besiegers would come wading in at night and chamber up the riverbank walls before the guards knew what was happening. So in other words, they thought they were protected by the water, but kind of outfoxed them there. And so, you know, they took the city that very night that this uh, banquet, this feast was happening. So what's the, the conviction that I think that, you know, this passage is imparting to us, it's this, the world seems out of control, but God judges those who rebel against him. The world seems out of control, but God judges those who rebel against him. You see, this had been prophesied. Isaiah 21.9 says, Babylon, Babylon is fallen. Isaiah 47.11, I mean, think about this verse in light of how this happened that night. And, and, and I mean, even think about the historical record of it. Isaiah 47.11, therefore the evil, therefore evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. They were shocked because they thought their city couldn't be invaded, but like that, it's over. God always keeps his word. You see, God judges rebellious kings. God judges rebellious kingdoms. But I think the thing that we have to watch out for 
fact is, in our minds, we can read a text like this, hear a story like this, and think, yeah, God, go get the bad guys. And we can fill in the blanks in our mind of whoever we think the bad guys are at a particular moment. But don't forget the Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When it says here in verse 27 that you are weighed in the balances and found wanting, that's not just kings and kingdoms and the people that we define as bad guys. That's each and every one of us. We've been weighed. We've been measured. We've been found wanting because we don't measure up to the glory of God. We've all sinned. We're all rebellious. In the words of R.C. Sproul, we've all committed cosmic treason against our Creator. Now, there's three particular ways that we see in this text this rebellion manifesting itself. One is in pride. In pride. Look again at verse 22. He says, You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. The beginning of verse 23 says, You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. That's what pride is. It's lifting ourselves up against the Lord of heaven. And remember what we read last week. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves, he exalts us. When, he, when we exalt ourselves, he humbles us. I read a story one time uh, about a young man who was a seminary student studying to become a pastor. And, uh, you know, the, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. And, and that's one of the challenges of seminary. And I've been there. You have a tendency to think you know more than you really do. And so this guy got a call one week to go to some uh, little rural church and, you know, fill in for a pastor. And, and he thought that he was going to go and, and, and wow these people with all this great knowledge that he had learned and, and, and with, uh, you know, his, uh, you know, preaching excellence from all of his great amounts of experience and, and, and everything. And, you know, he thought he was just the answer for these people. And he, he went and he, and he preached, and it was a complete flop. And, you know, he came down uh, from the pulpit, uh, off the stage, just really hanging his head. And a wise, older, godly lady said to him, Son, if you would have gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. When we exalt ourselves, God humbles us. When we humble ourselves, God exalts us. Remember, we talked about last week, pride is the root sin. But second, a second manifestation of this rebellion that we see here is idolatry. Now, again, this is one of these places where it's real easy for us to be like, well, you know, 
I'm not an idolater. I'm not one of these crazy people that bows down to statues or anything like that. I'm not like these people. I'm not, you know, it says here in verse 23 that they were praising the God of silver, gold, and bronze, and iron, and all these kind of things. Do you understand the Bible says in Ezekiel that we can have idols in our hearts? Um, You know, maybe the key here is the end of verse 23 when it says, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. You see, the essence of idolatry is not glorifying God. It's putting created things in the place of the creator. And so do we live our life with the conviction that God holds our breath in his hands? You know what that means? That means we're not guaranteed the next breath, number one. And it means, number two, if we get it, that's a gift from God that he deserves the praise and the glory for. I mean, we couldn't wake ourselves up this morning. But it says he owns all our ways. Do we really believe that he's in control and are we living like it? For his glory, or is it about us and us doing what we want, us celebrating ourselves, us making our uh, name known? Uh, I, I mean, I, I read an article recently that, this, that was titled The Age of the Narcissist, which is a great description for the age in which we live. Jeremiah 2.13 puts it this way. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, what he's talking about there is, you know, our hearts are hungry for purpose and meaning and fulfillment. And we're going to look for it somewhere. And we're going to find it in the true and living God, the fountain of living waters. Or we're going to make some broken cisterns, some human substitutes, some pseudo-functional saviors, some idols in our hearts. But they're like broken cisterns that when it's all said and done, hold no water. I think... Probably the person that, um, you know, that, that really teaches the best on this in, in our day and age is really probably Tim Keller. And um, he, he's written a book called Counterfeit Gods. And I've not read the book, but I've heard him teach on the subject. I'm going to have Andy uh, put out a link to him teaching on it this week. I would really encourage you to, to listen to it because I think if we really get this, it's one of the most practical things that we could ever uh, identify. Okay, you know, remember what Romans one twenty five says? It, it says, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what idolatry is. It's worshiping and serving created things instead of the creator. That's uh, along with pride, that's the root and essence of our sin. That's why Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness uh, of, of men. You see, what makes sin so bad is not so much the nature of the sin, it, it's the nature and the greatness of the one that we're sinning against and the fact that we're putting sorry substitutes in his place. Now, how do you know if something's an idol in your life? Well, he gives a question, and, and you know, for the next 
five minutes or so, basically, I'm just going to, you know, be teaching some of his material. But he gives a question to identify it. He says, what thing, if you lost it, could almost mean that you would lose the will to live or that all meaning and significance would be gone in your life? An example would be is if you study major financial collapses in the history of the world and you see the correlating large number of suicides that come after them when people lose their fortune. That would be an idol. He defines idolatry as an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity. An idol is anything you love more than God or your heart is looking to more than God. It can be something that's a bad thing in and of itself, or it can actually be a good thing that becomes a God thing, which then makes it a bad thing. And we need to realize, I mean, there's an atheist by the name of David Foster Wallace who before he committed suicide in a graduation speech, uh, he said that there's really no atheist because everybody's worshiping something. You're saying there was quite the worship service going on at Neyland Stadium last night. (laughs) And I watched the game and I'm happy that UT won, but I mean, let's call something what it is. I mean, for some people, that's the level that it rises to. But Keller says, and he's exactly right, that idols will always break your heart because no created thing can bear the freight of your deepest hopes or the weight of your soul's longings. A couple of examples that he gives, he he talks about, you know, he... Uh, you know, ministered in Manhattan for a really long time, planted Redeemer and, you know, all the churches that came out of it. But uh, he, he talked about, you know, people there being really secular people and, you know, they read the Bible and read about ancient religions and all these kind of things and they hear about child sacrifice and, and they scoff at, at that. But then he says, for the average person in Manhattan who has a family, their career amounts to them practicing child sacrifice because they're neglecting their family, they're neglecting their children, and, and their children are hurt by it. But then as their family falls apart, the irony is that their career ends up being hurt by it. Why? Because our idols can never carry the weight that we want them to carry. He talks about a writer by the name of Cynthia Heimel who wrote about, you know, there's a lot. He says, you know, if you live there, you'll meet people who are trying to make it in, you know, music or acting or whatever. And then, they're, you know, you meet them in a restaurant or whatever. And then someday they make it and they become a, a celebrity. And then she talked about in the article that uh, after they become a celebrity, they're miserable. And they make everybody around them miserable because they got what they wanted and found that it wasn't what they wanted because it didn't fill the hole in their heart. It's a broken cistern that can hold no water. He talked about a family that was having difficulty because the dad was, the the husband was just, he was a bad dad. And, and, And the mom was mad and, you know, trying to work through it. He's talking to her about forgiveness. But he said that her identity was wrapped up. Her identity was wrapped up in her son, in her son uh, loving her, her son being well-adjusted, her son doing well. And 
she wouldn't forgive the father because her identity was in the son and that hurt her marriage which hurt her son and made him worse and nothing was what she wanted because listen anytime we place our identity our hope our purpose our meaning in something of this world it can always let us down the only way you're going to have peace in life is if your life and your hope and your purpose and your meaning is defined by something that can never let you down, and that's only Jesus, and that's why anything else is an idol, a false god, a pseudo-savior. Some examples of idols would be things like career, religion, achievement, Spouse, children, sex, money, possessions, uh, political causes, physical attractiveness, financial security. But he talks about, and I think this is very wise, that you know, beyond these external kind of things, that really we have deep heart idols that he defines as things like power, approval, comfort, or control that that's what really defines us. For example, I mean, somebody could look like they, they have the external idol of money and financial security, but if their heart idol is power, they're going to use money to achieve power. If their heart idol is approval, they're going to use money, probably give a lot of gifts, kind of buy people off to get the approval of others. If it's comfort or, or, or control, they're probably never going to spend their money because what makes them feel like the world's all right is that they have a ton of money in the bank. I mean, think about it with sex. Sex may seem like, a, you know, an idol, but if the heart idol is approval, you know women who just kind of give themselves away to man after man and it makes no sense and they let themselves uh, be mistreated and, and those kind of things, it's probably because they're looking for approval and they'll take a fake version of it, you know, to get that feeling of it and, and that's what's really driving them on, on the inside. And sometimes instead of judging ourselves and judging other people on outward things, we need to get to the heart of the issue. But our idolatry is an expression of our rebellion. And then uh, the third one that he talks about here is failing to glorify God. That, that's the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So Louis XIV was the longest reigning French king in history. Reigned for 72 years, and he was known as Louis the Great. He had the most mag magnificent, extravagant court in all of Europe, and he planned and gave very specific, particular instructions for his funeral to be just as spectacular. And the man that he appointed to preach his funeral was a bishop by the name of Jean-Baptiste Massillon, and he instructed him that upon his death, he was to lie in state in a golden coffin at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, that his funeral service, at his funeral service, the entire cathedral was to be completely dark, lit, lit dimly by only one candle positioned above the coffin so that all would be awed by his presence even in death. And so Massillon did those things. At the funeral, thousands waited in silence you know, as they peered into the casket and, and, that, and held the remains of their monarch, illuminated by this single candle. But as he began his funeral oration, Massillon reached down, 
snuffed out the candle that represented this king's greatness and splendor and started his message with these words, only God is great. And that's what God wants us to get, that only he is great. He is worthy of glory. He hold, holds our breath in his hands. We exist by his pleasure. He owns all of our ways. He's Lord. He's God. He's King. He's glorious. We're not. And he calls us to live this way. So God judges the rebellious. He judges our pride, our idolatry, our, our self-glorification. So if all of that is true, what should we do in response? What's the action for us to take? The action is for us to repent and trust Jesus, I mean, if this is really our conviction, we will repent and trust Jesus. But the question is why? And so I want to end with, with, with the Christ connections and help us to see why, help us to see if this is our problem, help us to see if we've been weighed in the balance and, and, and found wanting, that this is our hope. This is what we can do in response. Why repent and trust Jesus? First of all, because Jesus is our judge. Listen, we're going to answer to him just like Belshazzar did. I mean, think about it for a minute. When, when Nebuchadnezzar took these temple implements from, uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon, this was God's judgment upon his idolatrous people. But think about it. God used those temple implements then to bring judgment upon Babylon and their idolatry and to bring them down in the end. He is our judge. Listen, Acts 17.30 and 31 says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Listen, Luke 12, 20, Jesus spoke a parable and he spoke of a man who was proud and haughty. And he said, fool, this night will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Jesus said, Matthew 24, 42, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour that your Lord is coming. Don't despise the warnings of God's word. Don't be destroyed by unheeded warnings. Think about it. Belshazzar had an invading army on his doorstep and thought everything was okay, and that night it was done. Listen to me. In our sin, all of us are either, are, 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 in our sin, all of us are Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. The question is, in our humility and repentance, are we going to be Nebuchadnezzar or are we going to be Belshazzar? Second, Jesus is our judge, but here's the good news. Jesus is our judge who took our judgment so that we can be saved. Think about it. They're drinking the wine from these vessels. The Bible tells us that Jesus drank the cup of the wine of 
the wrath of God. Listen, Romans 1.18, the, the wrath of God is poured out, is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. But on the cross, it was poured out on Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, Belshazzar was a proud king who got what he deserved. But Jesus is a humble king who came and took what we deserve in our place. He drank the cup of the wrath of God that we deserve to drink. And he did that so that we can be saved. You see, there's, there's judgment, but there's salvation through judgment. Romans 3, 24 through 26 puts it this way. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, on the cross, God was righteous. He punished sin. But through the cross, he imputes a righteousness to us that's not our own as a gift, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that God always judges sin. But God judges, judged it in the person of Jesus where if we'll repent of our rebellion and our self-will and our selfishness and our pride and our idolatry and we'll surrender to him and trust him, there's no more judgment. There's no more condemnation for us because Jesus took it all on the cross. And then last, Jesus is the one who can satisfy our souls instead of the substitutes that this world offers. Listen, are you looking to fill your heart with the living water, or is your life based on broken cisterns? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the only one who can really satisfy us at a heart level. And only the gospel can change us from the inside out. So I want to close with this illustration. And it actually, again, comes from Tim Keller in that same teaching. He talked about... Um, before he planned a Redeemer in Manhattan, he pastored a little church in a little town, uh, Hopewell, Virginia, and then he was a professor. But, it, but he talked about in, in Hopewell, there was a lady that lived near his church that uh, you know he, he ministered to, but he said this lady actually ended up teaching me more than I taught her. He said she was in her early 40s. But the way he described her, and I could picture this, you've met people like this. Have you ever met people that you just see them? And you know that life has just beaten them up. And they look decades older than they really are. And, and that's basically how he described uh, th this lady. He said she was in her early 40s, uh, but you know, she'd really struggled. Maybe had been in jail, had been in and out of drug uh, and, and alcohol rehab. But he, the way he described her, he said she was cursed with being beautiful. Beautiful child, a beautiful young lady, and as a beautiful young lady, 
uh, he said that she had men who were hitting on her all the time, often powerful men who basically wanted her as arm candy, and she fell for it, and her identity was found in the approval of a man. But he said that it ruined her life because when that's how you're wired, you'll let people mistreat you to get what feels like approval. And she let that happen time and time again. Then she turned to drugs to cope with it. But at some point, she became a Christian. And in addition to becoming a Christian, she started counseling, and she was seeing a therapist, and she was seeing a non-Christian therapist who helped her to a degree, but I would never recommend going seeing a non-Christian therapist because they're operating from a different worldview. It's part of the reason why we have a couple of counselors on staff here. But but said that the counselor helped her to a point, but it came a point where that broke down, and because she said, the therapist said this, said, you've built your identity on the approval of a man. You need to change that. And so here's what you need to do. You need to go back to school. You need to finish your education. And and you need to to, to get a career. And you need to have a good career and make some money. And and then you can find your self-esteem in that instead of a man. And so, uh, you know, she was still growing as a Christian. But she was uh, far enough along to get that this wasn't helpful advice. And so she said this to the therapist. She said, so what you're telling me is that I should trade a common female idol, which is looking for the approval of a man, for a common male idol of finding my identity in a career and money. She's like, I don't want to do either one. I don't want to have either addiction." I want to build my life on something that I don't have to earn and something that can't be taken away from me. She's like, can you help me with that? Everybody's like, I don't know. But she knew enough to know that the answer was Jesus. You see, all these men had basically said to her, your life For mine, Jesus is the man who comes and says, my life for yours. And that's the difference in an idol and the gospel. And you see, that's our hope. Living water, bread of life. And if we'll acknowledge our idolatry, our rebellion of however it manifests, our failure to glorify God, our pride and you know, living for ourselves and living for created things, if we'll humble ourselves, Jesus will come and he'll forgive us. He'll give us a new life in him. But see, then what she was doing and what we have to do is we have to learn to apply the gospel to our lives every day because sometimes people have met Jesus and they're forgiven, but you can't tell it because at a heart level, they're still looking for approval and comfort and control and all these things in all the wrong places. And all of us, me and you, wrestle with it in different ways, but we have to begin to see every day that it's Jesus is the only one that can satisfy us and look to him 
and find our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our comfort, our approval in Him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.